Hello and welcome to The 100 Podcast. I said, and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today, we are looking through our first predictive mock draft for the 2022-100 tournament. We have gone through and taken four teams each out of the eight and basically gone pick by pick of the available slots to see who might go where, what kind of strategies teams might make, and how the draft might look later this month. We don't know who's going to be available on the overseas side of things. We don't know base prices yet. So we've had to guess a little bit, but we think it'll be an interesting exercise. And we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but this is the first podcast we are recording uh, after the passing of Shane Warne, obviously cricketing legend and London Spirit head coach. Incredibly sad day for cricket, Charlie, because I think you know he meant a lot to both of us. Of course he did. I think it's fair to say that we very rarely were able to talk about anything 100 related without it somehow coming back to Shane Warne in some way. He just had that kind of aura about him. He was a real genuine superstar. And I think it's very, very rare in the world of cricket to have somebody that transcends the sport in such a universal way that, that Shane Warne did that. He was a true icon, a true hero. Uh, I remember back in 2007, I think it was, watching Essex play Hampshire at Chelmsford. And back in that day, it's pretty common for the pitch to be open, the spectators to go on to um, during the, the innings interval. Uh, and sometimes and sometimes fans would go onto the pitch to try and get autographs from players. And, you know, occasionally be a little rush towards somebody like Cook or, or Ravi Vipara, for example. But I have never seen such a stampede to a player as I did that day when Shane Warne was playing for Hampshire. I have never seen anything like it. I guarantee you it was about 80% of the ground rushed in his direction because that was his appeal. Everyone loved Shane Warne. And it's a desperately, desperately sad bit of news that Shane Warne is unfortunately no longer with us. And I wish the Warne family all the very best. We do indeed. Because it's a, it's a, a really horrible moment. And yeah, Shane Warne was the reason I got into cricket, I think. I don't think... I would be sitting here and doing this podcast or really be talking or thinking, maybe even watching cricket, if it wasn't for Shane Warne. Was that 2005 Ashes series? That's the first cricketing memories I have. It's the reason I got into the game. I was on terrestrial TV. And it, the, the magic that he brought to that series, um, the, the fact that he had all of these shoulder injuries and he wasn't, wasn't quite the same physical specimen that he used to be, but it was still absolutely dominant. And the theatre and the ripping leg breaks and the flippers and all of the magic he had brought me to the game. So, you know, I think it's two things, isn't it? It's just probably, in my opinion, the greatest cricketer of all time, uh, but also one of the greatest characters of all time. Just an incredible bloke who had a lot of time for everybody. And it's a real shame that he isn't, you know, with us anymore. Uh, he's a great guy. And it's, we were talking about a couple of days before we learned about his passing, how cool it would have been to send a documentary crew in to film him and the London Spirit. Well, that's all or nothing London Spirit things because he just had that appeal. Um, he just had that personality. It would have been so fun to see him coach and see where he took this side. So, yeah, a really devastating day. Uh, we don't have any information on what the London Spirit will do next. Obviously, that's very much secondary. Um, to the grieving process for everyone, because I think it's a, a very tough thing indeed. So, uh, yeah, cheers, Warney. Love you, mate. Uh, let's get into our mock draft then. How this worked was there are eight teams, obviously. We got four teams each, and then we filled the available slots that they had um, from the, you know, the, the leftovers of the retention process. Um, so, Obviously, different teams had different amounts of picks. The Southern Brave had four picks. Uh, the Welsh Fire had seven. So there's a few differences. Uh, we basically took it that Charlie took the odd numbers. That's the Spirit, Originals, Invincibles, and Phoenix. And I took the even numbers, which are the Fire, the Superchargers, the Rockets, and the Brave. And we're not going to go through the entire picks are made. We're not going to go through everything one by one. It would take too long. So if you want to go see how the entire draft stacked up, you can go to our Twitter page at Podcast 100 and you'll see all of the picks there. But we're going to go through the most interesting ones, the most interesting storylines, we think. So let's look at the first round. Uh, Mitchell Marsh went first overall to the London Spirit. That's something that's been heavily rumoured um, over the past few weeks. Andre Russell then went to the fire. Rabada went to the originals. And then I think we get to the most interesting part of the early rounds of this draft. Joe Clark's the Superchargers. I think the most fascinating thing to me, Charlie, 
is how high do you think Joe Clark and Tom Banton will go? Because I think they are the clear two best domestic players available. Here we have Clark going to the Superchargers and then the Trent Rockets taking Tom Banton with the sixth overall pick. How high can they go? What do you think? I think they're definitely going in round one. There's no question about that to me. We saw the value back in 2019 of taking the best domestic players early with Liam Livingstone. Look how well that turned out for, for Birmingham Phoenix. That was an inspired pick. Um, so they're definitely going in, a, in round one. Now, high, how high they go is another question. I think the spirit probably won't be going down that route. I think we can safely deduce they're probably going to go for an overseas player, as we mentioned, probably Mitchell Marsh. Now, in theory, from this point on, I don't see why Welsh Fire original superchargers wouldn't be looking at Clark and Bampton here. It may well be that they want to prioritise overseas players who are available. And we'll get to that in more detail in a little while. Or it may well be that they're going to get on the route of we want to get the best domestic player available in off the bat and then maybe look at some more Moneyball-esque overseas signings later. In which case it wouldn't be out of the question to see somebody like fire or originals going for a clark or a bantam now obviously those are the two teams that originally had clark and bantam um so there may be issues there they may not want to go back to those particular sides we'll see how that plays out we don't know the ins and outs but in theory i don't see why a team like welsh fire who don't have a particularly strong domestic core wouldn't want to go for the best domestic player available to me that would make sense i don't think it will happen but it could I think it's really interesting because we know that availability is an issue for these overseas players. So we know the pool's limited. I think a lot of Australians and Kiwis are going to get picked up purely because not many other countries are going to have availability. So if your high-end players aren't going to turn up, why wouldn't you potentially go for Clark or Banton in round one? And then, you know, you move them down to the round two bracket next year's draft and you get that top 125K pick for the elite overseas next year. I think it's interesting. I mean, we've heard rumours that Joe Clark is the pick for the Trent Rockets if he falls that far. I don't think he will. Um, the Birmingham Phoenix, I think, have a great gap there. I think for a top-order player, potentially like a Banton or Clark, I think they would fit really nicely for what the Phoenix would do, and that would really build a very, very strong domestic core. So I... I think both of them will be taken in the first eight picks. I think if either of them got to the Brave, I think the Brave would just take them, absolutely take them. I think that would make them pretty much unstoppable, potentially. Although I'm not, I'm not sure they'd actually be able to get three overseas into their team if they signed one of Banson or Clark, because they're that good. But I, I think every team should probably be interested in that, bar the spirit, maybe bar the Invincibles as well, actually, because when you have... Current, the current brothers, Roy, Billings, Jax, Mahmood, Topley. Do you really have space for another domestic player? I don't know. But yeah, I think the floor for both players is the Brave at eight. And I would be surprised if either of them made, to the, made it to the Phoenix at seven. To me, that's a shame because I really want to see Tom Banton at the Birmingham Phoenix. I really want that. I think the Banton and Smee's prospect opening up for them would be glorious. But I do agree. I think they will probably both be gone by then. And I think it'll be the correct decision as well. I think there's so much value to be had in just going in early for domestic guns who are guaranteed to be available. You can retain them year after year after year. They're probably going to get better because they're two young guns. So... For me, it's a pretty obvious call. I want to go with those teams. And with the exception of Invincibles, really, and I, I think every team would could do far worse than picking a Clark or Bantam here. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's unlikely that they'll they'll be gone any time after that brave pick. They'll be, they'll be gone by then. Yeah, and especially given there's no availability for these overseas. Because Andre Russell was my pick for the last fire. We don't know if he's going to be available for the entire tournament. And you look at some of the actual, you look, you look at the actual guns in World T20 cricket, your Shaheen Shahafridis, he's not going to be available for the entire tournament. Honor Ignorhea, Rabada, they're probably going to be playing test cricket, as is Marco Janssen. You, you know, you're really just looking at Australians and Kiwis and some other bits and bobs. And I think in that situation, you probably can look at some more money ball overseas signings, potentially. Um, and I think we'll get to that later. But yeah, I... We, we always have these in-depth conversations, Charlie, and I think we're usually right. And then teams prove us entirely incorrect by doing something absolutely crazy. But I would be really, really surprised if it doesn't go down 
the way we think it is with both of them going in round one. And I think, to be honest, it's most likely, given that Clark didn't want to go back to the originals and Banton didn't want to go back to the fire, I think it probably makes sense that the superchargers and the rockets are the landing spots. Um, because I think you, you can write to match. If I, I, I My understanding is you can write to match in the same bracket. I believe it's the same the same bracket in general. So I think as long as you've got a slot that's worth the same amount of money, then you can write to match as far as my as far as I'm aware. That's my understanding. So hypothetically, if the Welsh Fire were to select Andre Russell as their first pick, uh, and then Tom Banton were to go to Supercharges uh, after that, then Welsh Fire could just write to match Banton and he'd be their second 125k pick. As far as I'm aware, that's what would happen. Yeah, I think it's complicated, obviously, because Clark and Banton don't want to play for those franchises, but they don't get a choice, do they? So, I mean, obviously, you probably don't want a player who doesn't want to play for you because they'll probably just go next year and say, absolutely not again. But to be fair, if they're getting 125k, maybe they don't care. But but I, I would, I, we don't know exactly how it'd fall, but I would, I would think that both of them will be gone in those first rounds. And that's really interesting. I think Clark will probably be taken first, I would guess. Um, but those two are high, high-end players. So I think that is a storyline that's worth looking out for early on. The next thing, as we've talked about, is overseas avail- availability, Charlie, because this is where it gets murky. All of these high-end players just aren't going to be around for the tournament. The availability, the future tours program, it's just not looking good for the 100 this year. So I think you hit an interesting dilemma as a team, and there are two ways it can go, and I think we'll explain this through the second picks we have made of the London Spirit and the Welsh Fire. I picked first, I picked Heen Shah Afridi, Pakistan seamer. He is unlikely to play any games this tournament in the 100. That's what we understand. If he goes in for the draft, uh, we don't know, but he is unlikely to play any games. So I've selected him because, because you know, he's, he might be available, he might not be, we don't know. But, but beyond that, I've picked Heen Shah Afridi because I think he is a gun player and one of the best in the world, and you want him in your side long term. You've gone about it differently with the next pick. You've gone for a player who is maybe not world-beating in the same way. Trent Bolt, very good seamer, but he will be available for the whole tournament. So I think there's a quandary there for these teams is, do you go for the real high-end player and retain them to make sure you have their rights? Or do you think about something more short-term this year and pick someone who's going to be available for the whole tournament, whether that's a Stark, a Bolt, a Cummins, or whatever? Yeah, I think this is very much a debate of do we win now or do we win in a few years' time? Um, personally, I feel like availability in the present is by no means a bad thing. And I think with the Shaheen thing, obviously he's a world-class player and I would want him in my team over more or less any team in the world, I reckon, right now. But I think there's probably a reason that Birmingham Phoenix haven't retained him for this season. I yeah. think they're very keen on him, obviously. I mean, they picked him back in 2019 and retained him last year despite knowing that he probably wasn't going to be there. I think they've probably spoken to him and I reckon they've sort of unanimously agreed that he's not going to be available we're probably going to, have to let him go maybe we get him back next year with that in mind I feel like it probably makes more sense to especially if you're a London Spirit for example mm. who I drafted Trent Bolt for obviously last year really wasn't not wasn't the one at all and I feel like you can get Trent Bolt in for a season here Yeah, he'll do well for you and then you can release him and maybe go for someone better long term but it's an interesting quandary. I don't think there's necessarily a right answer with it. I think that the availability this season is such a such a minefield. So I think it's incredibly difficult for every team, really, to try and strike a balance here. I do think the 100 needs to sort this out, because I think it is a really high-standard tournament, but we don't really want to see some of what happened last year, where the overseas got worse and worse and worse, and it was suddenly, you know, having... Jimmy Neesham and Carlos Brathwaite in teams and they're lovely guys and good cricketers but not the high-end talent that you want to see in the league potentially so I think it's an interesting discussion and the reason I picked Shaheen for the Welsh Fire and I've been very open with this and if you want to listen to our retentions podcast with Max Backhouse to go to our feed it's great I've been very very clear in how I think the Welsh Fire are awful I don't think they have a good chance of winning next year because of the way they've gone about things um, I won't go into my great analogies, but basically I think they, they they don't really have a chance. I think the other seven teams are pretty well positioned. I just don't think they are. So when you are a team like the Welsh Fire, where really you have Duckett, Ball and Payne, and that's your 
that's your lot, really, unless Bairstow and Pope don't play test cricket. Um, if Johnny Bairstow does play for them and doesn't play test cricket, they look a lot better. But there's not really much there. And so I went with Shaheen Sharafridi under the assumption that, well, if Shaheen Sharafridi was available and willing to play the whole tournament, I'd make him my first overall pick in this year's draft. That's how highly I value him. So if you can get him at that bargain of the 15th overall pick, you just take him, you accept he's not going to go play this year, and you kind of have to live with that. Now, the Welsh Fire aren't going to do that because I don't think they probably realise how badly positioned they are, potentially. But I think that might be a play for them. So it's an interesting discussion. And it gets even more complicated when you look at the Rabadas and the Norheas of the world who might be available for two or three games, but not the entire tournament. That's where it also gets complicated. But I think the other thing to remember is that by all accounts, they're going to have a backup, a backup overseas, um, which will be selected at a later date. So it, maybe you do go in for one of these players with murky availability and just have to bank on your fourth overseas. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think if you've got partial availability for a player, then knowing that you have the fourth wildcard overseas up your sleeve just in case, maybe you'd be more tempted to go for, for example, Rabada, who might play for four games and then uh, he'll have to go for the rest of the tournament. Knowing that you have got you know a half-decent replacement for him, it might be worth having your best overseas player for half the competition than having a less good one for all of it. Or you might say, I don't want to do that at all. I just want the same guy to be available for the whole competition. I really think it is one of those situations where in, I don't think there's necessarily a correct answer yet. I really do think it's such a, a murky area. We don't actually know how it's going to play out and we still don't even know which overseas players are going to be available in the draft. Yeah. So I really think it's just a case of here are the options. Here's what they might do. Here's what some teams might do. Let's see what happens. I really think this is all we can say on the matter. Yeah, I think it, it does mean that those players who are going to be available and are high-end are going to are going to earn their money. Mitchell Marsh, Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark, I think Josh Hazel, Hazelwood would probably go somewhere. Glenn Phillips should probably get a good contract somewhere. I think all of these players who are available and are high-end and you can look to retain um, in the future are probably going to get picked up uh, and I would expect them all to go. Um, so I think that will be interesting. And also I think it puts a, you know, with, with lacking availability, it also puts an interesting you know, force into players who aren't necessarily going to be playing high-end international cricket for whatever reason, whether that's Tim David, because he isn't quite in the Australian side yet, whether that's Quinton de Kopp, because he's just retired from test cricket. That, I think, also adds value to players. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to uh, to look at as well. And I think you'll you'll get some really interesting overseas picks. And let's look at some of those lower-end overseas players that we have picked up in this little mock draft. There's two or three names I want to go into. And round five, we've got Lockie Ferguson and Henrik Norheyer um, for the Superchargers and the Rockets, respectively. I think Lockie Ferguson's going to be in high demand. Henrik Norheyer obviously has only played two games, but maybe that's the thing. It's another Shaheen situation. He may only play two games, but if you get him at a lower price, it's a bargain. So that's interesting. But I think the players that I want to look at are the guys that we've got lower down. Uh, and I think your Oval Invincibles and also your Birmingham Phoenix are the interesting ones in this regard. So I want to pick those three players that you've selected for them. Uh, in round seven, for the Invincibles, you took Azam Khan uh, and you took... Adam Zampa for the Birmingham Phoenix. That's in round seven. And then round 10, was a 50K bracket. You took Riley Rousseau for the Oval Invincibles. Those guys are really good players, but they're obviously not the players you'd be considering 100K high-end, top-dollar players. But they do a really good job, and they're all going to be available. So talk me through them one by one, basically. Let's go Azam Khan and Riley Rousseau first, and then we can get into Adam Zampa. But what, why, why does Azam Khan and Riley Rousseau fit the Oval Invincibles and fit these mid-round overseas picks? Well, first of all, Invincibles have got quite a chunk of domestic players in their top half of their draft board. You've got Roy, Billings, Curran, Jack, Saki Mahmood. So past your very first pick, the next pick they have is in round seven. So this is the highest point that you can pick your second overseas player. Um, and with that in mind, you're already looking at the more bargain ones just because by nature of the draft the higher ones will have either 
been taken already or will have had too high a base price and you're already priced out. Now, Oval Invincibles have in the past gone down this route and it, it does make sense to be they're going to go down this route again. If you look back in 2019, they drafted Fabi Allen pretty low down. Um, they drafted Riley Rousseau back when he was a local player about midway through as well. They have a habit of going down the more money ball approach for their overseas players and they will definitely do it again. Azam Khan makes perfect sense because if you look at that domestic core, don't really have a middle order beyond Sam Billings and Jordan Cox. So the spin hitter who is going to be available is a logical buy here. And Azam Khan has gone off the back of an incredibly strong PSL showing where he just obliterated spin consistently. He was so good there. Um, he's not in a Pakistan setup really yet. I think you're, you're banking on him to be available for the whole competition. He probably will be. For that price, I reckon he is genuinely a bargain. And Riley Rousseau at 50k, again, fills that middle order hole. As I mentioned, you know, he was an invincible player in 2019. Unfortunately, it never happened, but he was drafted by them. He's a player they clearly like. He's also had a very strong PSL showing. He's also not an international cricketer, so he will definitely be available for the whole duration of the competition, which I think is a really valuable asset. When you bring those two guys in, your middle order of Khan, Riley Rousseau, Sam Billings, looks a lot nicer already. That's a very strong middle order there. You cover a lot of bases. So I feel like it's all about picking up players that fill holes in your team at this point. Yeah, and I think they fit the Invincibles mould so well. Riley Rousseau is a very good franchise player. He's not an elite player, but he's very good at what Riley Rousseau is. And I think used in the correct mould in the middle order, asked to go after things can be really useful. And we've seen him do that in the PSL and other leagues. I like that pick and it just... It's very Oval Invincibles. Obviously, we know that CrickViz um, have a heavy influence there with Freddie Wilds, their analyst, and they love Riley Rousseau. I think that makes sense. Asim Khan, whew. I mean, we knew he was good before the PSL, but the way he played for Islamabad United, I thought he was incredible. I thought he looked... And when you get these ultra-talented cricketers a lot of the time, I think early in their careers, they struggle with game management, I'd say. You, you get those like, super aggressive players that go all out, they have some fun, but in the moments where you probably need them to stand up, they might make a mistake or go too early or get themselves out and don't quite understand game situations and don't quite win enough games. Asam Khan won games for Islamabad United. I thought he was fantastic. I thought he controlled chases brilliantly. He's destructive. Look, we know he's a bigger guy, so he's going to have to keep for you because you don't want him in the outfield. But but you, you look past his size. He's just a phenomenal player. And I wonder if he lasts that long. Where, where in, in your mind, where do you value Azam Khan? Because I would value him as somebody I would draft within the top four rounds. That's how highly I think of him. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm, I'm with you there, actually. I can see that. Um, I think him falling at 60K was pretty good value for me, I think, given how good he has been recently. He's he's very mature for his age on, on the pitch. He's very mature. Like you say, he he does control chases incredibly well. And that's that's a really tough skill set to have. That's not something you just you just have, you know. You got something that it's it's so hard to do. With that in mind, I think he's probably worth more than the 60k paid for him. Equally, I feel like there are, might be some teams up there that just haven't done their homework. You know, we've seen in previous drafts there've been there maybe has been a little bit of a trend of picking the big name players rather than the best value players. And I wouldn't be surprised if some teams go down that route again. In which case, as Amkar may well fall at 60k or lower, mm. uh, and in which case whoever gets him would be getting a bargain. Yeah, and I think this is the thing also is because there's no picks in round four in this draft. Because there are so few picks, and I think so many teams will want to go in for the high end overseas who are going to be available. It's just natural that a player like him would fall through. And it's not saying that teams are undervaluing him. I just think it's how the, the draft is going to go. Uh, obviously, we love Azam Khan. I think that would make a lot of sense. And I'd be very happy to have him in my team. Uh, I don't think he's the finished product yet, which is really exciting. Obviously, he's only 23, but you know, he was he was just fantastic um, for the Islamabad United team. Um, and there are so many innings. I think the one I think about uh, is the innings against Peshawar Zalmi. And they were chasing 206. They didn't get there, 
Um, Ramon Gerber has made 46 of 19 in that, by the way. No one else contributed. Mubasir Khan made 21 of 19. Asif Ali made 11 of 12. And Asim Khan was just batting with whatever was left and made 85 of 45. Destroyed the bowling. It's just an, an incredible performance. They didn't win that game. Be carried at the side, and I think he can do that. And so I love that pick. And so, yeah, Azam Khan is a big favourite for me. So he's the kind of player, I think, that when you look at his availability, because he doesn't play Test cricket yet, really interests you. Before we get on to uh, an age-old Farah tactic that we'll bring up in the old bargain basement overseas list, let's talk Adam Zampa for the Phoenix. They picked him up, I think, in this kind of range of round seven range in the original 2019 draft. We know what Adam Zampa is. He is not your deceptive, you know, incredibly dominant leg spinner. But he's a really good operator. He's really canny, very accurate, and he gets great results. He's a really, really good operator. And I think that's the kind of player that you should be looking for in this situation. Great availability, not necessarily the biggest name, but really, really good. I think Zampa may actually go earlier in the draft proper, just given his availability and the fact that in the last couple of seasons, he has been... Really good, in my opinion. I, I think he's one of the better leg spinners in the world in T20 cricket for my money these days. I really do rate him highly. Uh, I know he was a Phoenix player originally. They did release him. I'm not sure why that was. Maybe that was a, a financial thing. I don't know. But either way, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they get back in for him. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they go for him earlier than this or someone else does get there before. But either way, 60k for Adam Zampa is great value. I really think it's great value. I, I can't think of many better leg spinners you can get for that price range. I think he complements their team really nicely. Zampa, Moan and Livingstone, that's a very nice spin attack there. You've got a lot of bases covered. So I'm dead happy that I got him there. We've done the mid-round values. Let's go to the old Farah tactic. We have done two big 100 redrafts. We did one before the first season where we just redrafted our teams amongst the 2020 framework. And then we did one very recently with uh, eight, um, general managers repicking the entire hundred from scratch, and because I like to be a good old dead horse, I used my branded tactic of overseas management and waited to the final bracket to get the player that no one else wanted, the gem without a base price. Uh, and I've done it for Rassi van der Dussen. That's how I did in the original draft we did before the season. And then obviously I did Mohammed Hasnain and Zahir Khan. Uh, in the 2021. And I think it is a slightly flawed tactic. I don't think it's something that you might necessarily want to do in real life. I just kind of did it because I thought it would be funny. But I think in this instance for the Northern Superchargers, it works because they've obviously got Faf 2 plus C in round four. In this, we project them getting round five, Lockie Ferguson. We don't know if Lockie will be available at that price range, but but a, a, an overseas scene will go there. And then obviously they've got Adol Rashid and Callum Parkinson but with the batting depth they have in Clark, in Willie, Duplessis, Brooke, Simpson, Adam Lyth, I picked Joe Denley as well. I went to replace Majeev with a compatriot of his, Noor Ahmad, who was available in round 13. No one else had picked him. He's not really big enough to be potentially looking for a base price yet. He's not currently in Afghanistan's plans, which obviously in front of him you have... Rashid Khan, Mohammed Nami, Majiba, Rahman, Kays, Ahmad. And he's just really, really good. Nora Ahmad's a young talent, um, obviously the left arm, wrist spinner. Uh, he's got some developing to do, but I think he's got a very high ceiling. And that is the other tactic that teams might go down here. You go and get that young talent, maybe someone who isn't playing international cricket for whatever reason, uh, and kind of attack that domestic core this year, try and work some magic by moving them around the brackets next year and then have uh, Noor Ahmad or whoever, a basement bargain player, see if they develop, retain them if they do, if not going for a big name next year. So I think that's interesting. We've talked at length about my, my overseas tactic, but I think in this situation, it might work. I think it might. There's definitely value to be had in waiting a little bit longer in the overseas, unquestionably. I mean, you look at Nora Ahmad, Russo, Azam Khan, Adam Zampa. These are all quality operators. Maybe they're not elite, but they are A, all available, and B, filling holes in your side that need filling. Um, in that 
respect, I don't think it's a particularly bad tactic at all. I think it makes perfect sense. I don't necessarily see the superchargers waiting this long, or indeed any team, to be honest. I think they'll go a little bit earlier, especially given the you know potential dearth of high-class overseas operators that are going to be available in this competition and in this draft. But Nor Ahmed at that price does make sense. What he does allow you to do is maintain more or less the same balance as last season in having the two frontline spinners of Rashid and Majib last season. Straight swap out, Majib out, Nor Ahmed in. Yes, of course, a little bit of a downgrade, but you can maybe keep Nor Ahmed for a season longer if you want to, or you can let him go get Majib back if in future he becomes available. I just think it makes sense, honestly. Like Picking him lower allows you to get two solid domestic options in Hose and Denley, both of whom I think, again, fill holes in your side. Very valuable top-order players, both of them. I just think he gives it a bit of flexibility. I, I, I honestly quite like it. Um, I, I, I've laughed at this at the past, but I do think it makes sense. I tell you why I believe in this tactic. I did a mock draft for the first ever 100 draft, Charlie, the 2019 one that we loved. And there were some interesting picks there. And I think it was a little bit weird at times of the way I went about things. But the Oval Invincibles picked up some very good players. They got uh, Quinton Zakok and Shakib Hassan in the first couple of rounds. And in the final round, they got their third overseas. I used this tactic with them. I picked Adam Milne in the final pick, round 14, mock draft. I put it out before the original draft. You can go see it. You can go check it. Adam Milne was in the final round. Who was the best bowler in the 100 last year, Charlie? Josh Cobb. That's a very- <laughs> No, it's actually Dylan Pennington. Um, no, it, it, it was Adam Mill. He had an incredible tournament and he was available. And I know we, we talked about this at length before with Ben Jones, another Christmas analyst, about he had injuries and he wasn't quite there. But I look like a genius for doing that. And, I, I, and obviously it hasn't quite paid off for me since, but that tactic is available. And I think that's interesting. And I wonder if teams will finally replicate the Farrow method. Uh, and chase my Adam Milne success because I've been living off that for a while. Let, let's finish off then uh, looking at domestic picks. I think there's two interesting parts of this. One, the second level of domestic players after Banson and Clark, which we'll get into first. And then secondly, the lower end domestic players we might see populate the lower rounds because we know that a lot of the great domestic talent has been kept. So the actual pool of domestic players isn't particularly great. So I think we will see some interesting players go in certain places. And let's talk about the players that got picked uh, in the you know, top six rounds domestically. Uh, you took Tom Kohler Camera in round three for the Birmingham Phoenix because you didn't get Banson or Clark. So Tom Kohler Camera, you know, round three, 100K might look quite pricey, Charlie. But is it worth it when you have Adam Milne at 75K, Tom Abel at 60K, Chris Benjamin and Miles Hammond at 40k and Will Smead at 50k because Will Smead is worth 100k. So when you have that composite value of the savings built up, Kola Camor around three, whilst it is a reach if you think about it, if you look at the composite values, it works. Yeah, it does. When you've got that great value lower down, then what it essentially does in a weird kind of way is almost flip around the value of a lot of players. So you're, you're in, in many cases, picking players a lot earlier than you would do because it's an open draft. But you have to think of it in terms of what holes do I need filling in my squad and how important are they? Because usually, you know, in this instance, I wanted an opening bat. That was very important to me. Tom Banton was my number one target. Didn't get him. So then I thought, well, who is the next best option there? And by some distance, I felt it was Tom Kohler Cadmore. So when he fell to me for 100k, it just made sense because that hole in my squad was very important. I knew I needed it filling. And if I didn't get in there, I think he would have probably gone later. So you have to work out what is the most important thing and pay for them as much as you can, honestly. Like it, it, it sounds silly saying this, but in a way, you almost have to ignore the price and think of it in terms of value to your squad rather than price for that player. And I think at that point in the draft, that opening bat was the most important thing for me, the domestic opening bat. Yeah. And because there aren't many great players available in the domestic sphere, you either get one early or you don't get a very good one. That's just how it works for this domestic talent pool. And I do think 
there are going to be selections that raise eyebrows in this draft. Carlo Camor would raise eyebrows in round three. What people have to understand is that it's the composite value of things. You have to think about what do they already have? What do they bring? Because the benefit of being the Brave or the Phoenix or whoever is in a good position has retained lots of good players is that you only really need to fill a couple of gaps because you have all of these great players on lower brackets. So you've got to think about that composite value. What have you got already? And it's not a reach if it fills a great need in your team and you have all of that value at an incredibly low cost. So I think that's you know that that's it, and it works in Cola Cadmore's case for the Phoenix. Because then you have Cola Cadmore opening up with Will Smead, then you have Moeen, Liam Livingston, Chris Benjamin, Miles Hammonds, Tom Abel, all those options. And because you have all six of those, the Livingston, Moeen, Smead, Benjamin, Hammond, Abel, before you have Cola Cadmore, the, the amount of domestic talent you have just makes that pick worth it. So I think that's a conversation that people will need to have when these shocks happen. They will happen. And let's go through and look at some other players. In round five, we had a run of Liam Dawson going to the London Spirit, John Thompson going to the Welsh Fire, and Laurie Evans going to the Originals. I think Liam Dawson is worth a round five pick in this kind of conversation. I think for a lot of teams, having a flex left-arm spinner, and what I mean by that is a left-arm spinner who can operate in both the power play and the middle overs, and then also some batting depth is very valuable. So I think Liam Dawson in this kind of range is fair. And I, I think Liam Dawson gets a lot of unnecessary hate, but he's a very good player, as we saw in the PSL. John Thompson, Laurie Evans maybe aren't quite that level. I love John Thompson. I think he's worth this amount of money. Um, but Laurie Evans is potentially a reach. But that's the other thing, Charlie, is that those are the fourth, fifth, and sixth best players available, potentially, in the domestic sphere. And that's just kind of how you have to roll. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. You're looking at A, what positions do I need filling? And B, who is the best player available? And in both the, the five originals cases, we have already filled the uh, overseas allocation at this point. So you're limited entirely to domestic players. And at that point, you just have to pick the best player available. Now, you look at that list and you think, you know, I'm paying Laurie Evans the same amount as Matt Parkinson. I'm paying him more than Tom Hartley and Tom Lamanby. Is that really great value for money? You know, open draft, it probably isn't. But in this draft, Yes, it makes sense because when you're locked in that quality of domestic player so low, you can go you can go ahead and basically spend as much money as you want on filling those holes and taking the best players available. So Laurie Evans does plug a pretty sizable gap in that middle order here. He does make a lot of sense in that team. And I don't think there's much argument about it for me. Like you say, people just need to accept that domestic players are going to go for more than they're probably worth in an open draft. And that's just the nature of these drafts, I think. Yeah, because I think when you look at the best players available, it's just not astounding. I mean, you look at what's after that, Ian Cobain, Joe Denley, Delray Rawlins, Pat Brown. When you get past that, Adam Hose, Danny Briggs, Joe Cracknell, Daniel Moriarty, Luke Wright, Matthew Fisher, it's just not a, it's just not a great deal of stud players left. So I think you just have to kind of accept that these players are going to go in the middle rounds. You're going to get these players going in the middle rounds. We've got Pat Brown going in round six, which is way more than anyone would have wanted to retain him for. But because you have no options, he's going to get paid. And I love Pat Brown. I think a couple of years ago, we'd have been raving about him in that range. Obviously, injuries have hurt him. But that's the situation you now find yourselves in, is you've got to take a punt on a player like that and hope that he gets back to his best. And that's kind of what you have to do in those situations. So expect players to go really early like really early a lot of these domestic guys we have Lewis Reese in round seven um Dario Rawlins in round six uh, Daniel Bell Drummond and Joe Cratton in round nine Freddie Heldreich who many people might not have heard of in, in round 10 you know we're just going to get some maybe some weird players going these rounds so yeah and hey podcast favorite Daniel Moriarty got picked up so we're all happy but I just think we're gonna we're gonna see some weird players and I think ultimately it's going to be what gaps do you have on your side and how do you fill them which is why teams who've retained a lot of players have an advantage yeah I mean I think the one that I found quite interesting actually doing this was Lewis Reese the Manchester Originals now I, yeah. I picked him in round 7 for 60k which for context puts him in the same bracket as Azam Khan as Adam Zampa as Dan Lawrence Mason Crane and Reese Topley and I'm not saying he's on that level he's not but what he also was, was my very last pick with the originals because every single slot after that was filled. So 
I was basically treating it as if he was my round 14 pick and I just needed a player to fill a very particular gap in my squad. I wanted, you know, a, a versatile sort of utility player, I suppose, someone who could bat in the top order, give me a bit of bowling as well. And Lewis Reese, I felt like was the best available fit for that option. So while 60K might seem pretty absurd for Lewis Reese, and, you know, I, I like Lewis Reese quite a lot, but 60K, I think it's fair to say, is quite an overpayment for him. I think it made perfect sense at the time. And I, I think you will see picks like that happening, particularly, I think that one slot in the draft will be quite a reach for whoever it is, just because of the nature of their retentions. Yeah. But but again, it's the thing. Yeah, okay. Lewis Reese might seem absurd for 60K, but Tom Hartley seems absurd for 50K. Colin Ackerman and Wayne Madsen at 40K is insane. Calvin Harrison at 30K, insane. I think you could apart from Fred Clarson and maybe Jamie Overton, I think you'd be happy bumping up pretty much all of their picks in another price bracket. So let's just say a Tom Hartley, is he worth round seven pick? He is for me. Tom Lamaby could bump up into round eight. Colin Mack and Wayne Madsen, you'd be happy putting him in 50K. When you have, again, that composite value, say you roll. And Lewis Reese fits the originals nicely because you love a dasher up at Old Trafford. Was getting, into a, getting off to a good start of the power players really important so i think players like that will be interesting um and yeah we're going to see some weird names but ultimately it will regardless of how it looks still be good process i think i think the final thing to look into um you know we've talked about the higher end players we've talked about the role players if you're looking for a left arm spinner like you know the southern brave are you're probably going to go in for a briggs or a moriarty um you're going to get players like cabane and reese and and crack and go to certain places but what i want to talk about are the players who might sneak into the late rounds. These kind of lesser-known players, potentially, these potential players who you kind of take a flyer on in the later rounds because, again, the domestic scene isn't looking particularly good. I think there are a couple of names to note. We haven't been too adventurous, I think, in this. I think we, we, we could have been wilder. We've tamed ourselves a little bit to try and make this realistic because we did try and do this predictively. But there are two names, I think, that should be mentioned that maybe people wouldn't expect to get picked up. And they were both in round 13. Uh, it was for your Phoenix and my Brave. You took Jacob Bethel, under 19 star. So now I took Luke Holman, the Middlesex leg spinner and batter. So I think those are the kind of players that line yourself up nicely in these rounds. Because I think actually... Now, we, we, we've gone through the whole conversation now about how you can take flyers on domestic players. I think when you have all these retentions, especially for a team like the Brave, and you have such a good team already, you don't really need anything but depth. You can take a flyer on a player with high potential. I could list off some names for you. I will after we've had this chat, actually. But you can kind of just take a punt on a high-value player, uh, and the Phoenix can do that, other teams can do that. And you've done it with Jacob Bethel for the Phoenix. So explain why. What is it about Bethel you like and why might he be the kind of flyer that teams take? Well, as you alluded to, when you look at the Phoenix batting that have already got locked in, you've got Livingstone, Moeen Alley, Tom Abel, Will Smead, Chris Benjamin, Mars Now that is a superb domestic batting lineup. There's no question about it. It's so strong. So I wanted one backup guy. And when your starting group is that strong, you can afford to basically have a punt on someone young and high potential, such as Jacob Bethel. I think he makes a lot of sense for the Phoenix. He's a very uh, very high-intensity batsman, very high-intent. He's aggressive. He's only 18, plays at Warwickshire, which obviously you know ties in nicely with Phoenix. He knows Ed Baston. Uh, he'll know guys like Henry Brooks, who was picked up in a similar fashion back in 2019. I just feel like Phoenix are the kind of team that will be looking for as kind of dash that has breakout talent. You know, Will Smead, Chris Benjamin both came through in spectacular fashion last season. And I really wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to try and find another one. Jacob Bethel, to me, is the pretty obvious fit for that particular hole. So if he does go there, I don't know. But I just think given their previous draft activity and given the way they play their cricket, it would make an awful lot of sense. I think he's a really good player. I think he's going to be really good in years to come. He's only played three professional T20s at full level. So, you know, there is the risk of him being a little unexperienced, a lot more unknown quantity at the highest level. But then Chris Benjamin came through in the exact same scenario. He played even less. And look at what he did. So there's, there's definitely 
a past for this. There's definitely a pathway for a Jacob Bethel to come through and make a big name for themselves here. Personally, I think it's a slot that they can afford to have a punt on a guy like this. I just think it makes sense to them. Um, personally, I think this would be a really exciting move for it to happen in the real draft. I mean, you don't need to depend on them, do you? You don't need to depend on them. You can take the flyer and see how it goes. I mean, I think Bethel's interesting. I think I might be interested by a leg spinner in this slot for the Phoenix, because obviously you've got Moen and Livingston as your part-timers, but you've only really got Zampa as a front-line spinner. And I think you're probably happy going in with Zampa, Livingston and Moen. But you might think, well, you know, again, this is a depth piece. Why not take a flyer on a really promising domestic spinner and see what comes up? And uh, Names that I might mention, Archie Lenham, Rehan Ahmed, really interesting player. Obviously at Leicestershire, there's a Leicestershire connection. Really talented young guy. I think he might be in play. And the player I've picked for the Brave, Luke Holman, I like as well. So I think that might be interesting. And Luke Holman, for me, I, I basically what we're doing at the moment, and we'll release this in a couple of weeks, is we're working on a top 50 domestic board for available domestic players, basically. It's the top 50 players that we would consider drafting in the 100, ranked by where we would pick them, basically, and how much we value them. And obviously, things will change in need, but that's a very basis. Who do we think are the best 50 players not picked up? Now, I was going through and watching some you know, clips of players, and I think a player that really excited me when I think we, we looked at it was Luke Holman. He is kind of in that Calvin Harrison, Matt Critchley role of a pretty much frontline leg spinner who also bats in the middle order pretty well. And I've said before, I like Calvin Harrison over Matt Critchley. I also think I potentially like Luke Holman over Critchley, not necessarily right now, but just in terms of a ceiling. I think when you watch him bowl, he turns it a surprising amount. He gets good bounce. He has pretty good control as a leg spinner. And then he's got some power with the bat. And I think he's just another guy who can fill that role, could bat seven or eight and probably bowl three or four sets and has the potential to be a pretty good domestic player. So I think he's interesting as well. And uh, I think those are the kind of flyers you take. What do you make of Holman? I have interest. I don't think we've talked about this before. I've talked a lot about how much I like Holman. Obviously, it's tough to kind of find clips of him bowling like it is with a lot of players. It's really hard to find clips. So what, what do you make of him? Because you've watched him a lot. Yeah, I really like him, actually. I've had him on my board in quite a few month drafts, actually. In fact, I think I very nearly took him back in the very first one we did back in 2021 before the tournament started. I've had mine on him for a little while. I just like what he offers you as an all-round package. I think he is... I'm, I'm always wary of players who I call kind of a false balance option. Players who bat a bit and bowl a bit but don't really do enough to be either a frontline batter or a bowler. And Luke Holman, for me, avoids that trap because I think he can operate as one of your front five bowlers. And I think if batting at seven is strong enough to make it work without, you know, going too bowler heavy, I don't think you would lose too much batting with him at seven. With that in mind, I think he is a very appealing prospect. I think there is so much value to be had in a fifth bowler who can bat. You've only have to see the amount of money that the likes of Romario Shepard and Odin Smith have been going for in the IPL to see that, you know, you, you can argue the merits of some of those kind of picks all you like, but there is great value to be had in a bowler who can bat at seven. That is a hugely valuable thing to have. And I'm not saying Luke Coleman is on that level by any means, but what I am saying is that he offers you enough of both skill sets to be a genuine balancing option rather than a false balancing option. Like, I'm not going to name any names because I feel mean, but there are plenty out there who bat seven and are a fifth bowler and aren't really good enough at either. And Holman is not that for me. I think, and this is something I think we've briefly touched on before, I think we're seeing the death of the batting all-rounder now. I think you're going to see less and less batters a bowl, a bit of part-time stuff, and more and more of the Holmans of the world, the Critchleys, the Harrisons, who are, you know, pretty serviceable leg spinners. I think Holman's good. I think Harrison's good. Who could also offer some batting depth? I think you're more likely to see that because part-timers and good matchups get taken down these days. And there are very few... I'd say batting all-rounders who can still sneak through overs. I think Glenn Maxwell is a good example of a, a one who I think is a vastly underused T20 bowler. But I think you, you, these days you're going to see a lot more bowling all-rounders. I think that's a kind of phase away. Because we used to see, you know, the, the real value in players like, say, Ben Cutting, who is a good player and a good franchise player. 
But teams would depend on him to bowl a lot of overs and it just wouldn't work. If he just played Ben Cutting as a finisher in a sixth or seventh bowl, it'd be fine. But he just got taken down consistently at the death. But when you have a Holman, who I think can bowl his allocation like a Harrison, who provides batting depth, I think these days that is the trend. I think we'll see a lot more of them. So he really interests me. So it's something we discussed before, but I think it is something that's starting to prove itself and come alive in the game. I think that's a really good point, actually. It makes a lot of sense. There's the old adage, isn't there, that, you know, batters win your games, bowlers win your tournaments. And I just think it's so important to have five genuine frontline bowlers. I think the days of sneaking through and over a part-time spin, it is it has been on the wane for a little while now. You know, you, you go back four or five years ago, and it was very common for teams in the blast to open up the bowling into power play with a bit of part-time spin. And it doesn't really happen so much anymore because it just gets taken down. You, know, you can't sneak through and over of Tom Wesley anymore. No. Those days have gone because Tom Wesley wasn't a very good bowler. So now teams are going to target the not very good bowlers. So why not counteract that by simply not bowling any bowlers who aren't very good and having five bowlers, at least, who are all genuinely good and can bowl a full four sets? That makes complete sense to me. That's why the fifth bowler who can bat is an incredibly valuable proposition because teams are now less willing to have a fifth bowler who isn't that good. The teams are less willing to sneak through a few overs of part-timers to make up the fifth bowler combined. It doesn't really work anymore. It just isn't particularly sustainable as a balance. So the fifth bowler who can bat is an increasing necessity, I think. The number seven slot is genuinely really vital in terms of the balance of a team. I think it can be a make or break position. And if you can find a guy like Luke Holman, who will be pretty cheap, but will balance out that team nicely in that seventh slot, then I think you're in business. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that theory. I think it's such a vital slot to fill. And I just don't think you can get away with, you know, making up your fifth bowler with part-timers anymore. It isn't sustainable. And it's, it's the dawn of intent in cricket, isn't it? Because for a long time, T20 cricket was exciting, but you'd always build towards the death. These days, intent in the power play, intent up top is kin. You know, I think we see a lot of very interesting and intelligent sides who go after things, who are aggressive, you know, who play those percentages. And, and now teams are playing like that and, you know, scores are going up and up and up. You can't sneak in bowlers anymore because teams are going to go after it because they need to take every possible run and go after every possible matchup and so that's it it's the dawn of intent and the dawn of matchups is kind of taken away from those the good old days of sneaking through and over of dodgy off spin you know i, I remember if you remember that do you remember the adelaide strikers side you won the big bash in was it about 2017 i want to say that was when alex carey broke through and he opened the bang with jake weatherald really really good side um, and they won that tournament with some fantastic performances. Uh, Alex Carey especially was fantastic, scored a couple of great hundreds in that tournament. But, uh, but I distinctly remember that the big weakness with Carey and Weatherall is if you bowled an off-spinner to them in the first over, they would literally just plonk the bat forward and maybe take two off the over. And just, they wouldn't go after it at all. And they were still a good team because those kind of margins didn't matter to them. These days, you don't get that. If you bring an off-spinner on, they're going to be targeted. So I think that's a big thing. Intent... Um, and matchup taking on has kind of taken away those batting all-rounders and those part-timers. And I'll tell you why, and this is the second thing of why that makes it important, because teams are attacking more, batting depth is really important. So to have a Luke Holman at eight or, or whatever, you know, is important because you, you can collapse if you go that way. It doesn't work every time if you go all out. So to have a Holman at seven or whoever at eight, if you have those bowling rounders who can provide depth and quality overs, that is where you get the advantage. So this dawn of intent has really opened it up in both ways. You need the batting depth, which they offer, and you need to have quality bowlers, and that's what they offer. So I think a player like Holman is really interesting. So I think, yeah, it's just that this new age of cricket is developing these kind of players. And I think that's why taking a shot on someone like Holman, who I think will be quite high on our board when it comes out, is worthwhile. I mean, I think there's there's two sort of schools of thought, really. The first one feels a little bit outdated to me now. That's when you'd have 
a really strong bowling attack of five genuine frontline bowlers. And then you'd have a solid batting lineup, not an explosive one, but a solid one, because you'd back your bowlers to keep your position to a low enough score that you're a solid anchor-like batting unit would be able to knock off the runs without really having to stress themselves out and go too hard at it because the depth wouldn't be necessary because the target that the bowlers kept them to wouldn't be big enough to have to go particularly hard. Yeah. Then there's a school of thought that says, what if we, we have the good bowling attack, but also make sure that bowling attack can bat and bat deep? Because then when you have that depth, you can afford to tee off and play aggressively with really high intent and know that you have so much depth to come that if you get out, it doesn't matter too much because the next guy is going to come in and do the same thing. And chances are at least one of them is going to come off. So if you have, you know, your whole man at eight or, I don't know, like a Pat Cummins at eight, then you're laughing really because you know that you have so much depth to come, your wicket isn't as valuable anymore. Whereas if you have the slightly shallower batting lineup, your wicket becomes more valuable. Suddenly there's a lot more responsibility on your head as a batter to, to kind of get the team home because if you get out, there's a lot less to come. So mm. it does change the way that you approach the game as a batter. And I just think that personally, the the high intent, the high intent with the very deep batting lineup is my preferred way to go I just think that's such a, a winning formula I, I don't necessarily think that the five bowlers plus more anchor like batting is that sustainable anymore I think it's a little bit too one-dimensional but this is the thing but it was so successful it's successful in the past for a reason because that's how T20 was played you know ultimately that was the way to win was to have a top bowling attack because you knew teams weren't going to put on huge scores against them that that sunrises hyderabad era where they were just a fantastic side with that top bowling lineup were great also i think the perth scorchers are probably a really good example of that for years they just had this incredible bowling lineup and then you had michael klinger at the top who would score his runs at 120 or whatever and would guide you to decent enough scores and you'd have ashton turner to give it a bit of a bash and then you look at it and we're like, okay, right, uh, we'll give the ball to Jason Berendorf and then we'll win the game. And that was how it worked. And especially when they had, you know, Courtland had beer there. They had, some, they had some quality bowlers at the Scorchers over the years. Oh, remember Brad Hogg when he was there? Now, that, oh, that, yeah. was, the, that was the peak Scorcher side. But that's the thing. That was how you won. And that was the advantage these days. Now, don't think, I don't think we look back to it in hindsight and say, that wasn't a very good way of playing cricket. It's very, it, it, that was how you should have gone about it those days. And they, they found the market. These days, that's not the way to do it. And I actually think the 100 is kind of at the pinnacle of this, was a team who, who look in that direction, who are both a strong bowling side and an intentful batting team, are the Oval Invincibles. They have the Curran brothers, Topley, Mahmood. Uh, last year, you know, obviously got Tebray Shamsi in as well. You know, they've got this like, incredible domestic core and a really, really strong bowling lineup. And then they had that really intentful top order as well with Narine and Jacks and Roy. And ultimately, I think they balanced their team right last year. I think they, they just didn't quite have enough batting depth to sustain it. Um, I, I think they'll be better this year, I think, with the balance side of things. But they didn't quite have you know, they didn't quite have the depth to sustain that aggressive approach. But that I think is the really interesting way of pairing both worlds. You have the Tom Moody world of getting that great bowling lineup and they have those amazing seamers. And then you have the intent world and you're combining both those things. I think it's a magical thing. So I'm so interested to see how the Invincibles go. So yeah, we've gone on a bit of a tangent there, but I think it is, I think it is really interesting because I think cricket is, be, is being played in such a different way that team building becomes even more interesting in the different ways that you attack the game. So yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting to see who gets picked up. And, you know, we're going to be all over this over the next month. We'll have close to the time another mock draft and see what kind of buzz is out there. Try and gauge who's available when we get the players list. We'll do one of those. Our top 50 list is going to come out soon as well. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll list the top 50 domestic players in order. There'll be a couple of surprises on there. And hopefully, um, I, I, really don't, I really don't think you'll see some of these players coming. So I think that'll be interesting. And we'll also very soon do another mailbag. We'll do a draft and retentions mailbag, I think. It's where you submit your questions to us and we answer them. We'll answer anything. So all you need to do is drop us a message on social media. At Podcast 100 on Twitter is probably the best place. We'll post about it there as well. So feel free to comment below one of our posts or slide into our DMs and just ask us a question about 
the retention or the draft, and we all answer them in a mailbag. So loads of really, really fun stuff coming up. And uh, yeah, just excited. I, I tell you what, Charlie, I think because we do so much draft stuff, like the draft itself is such an exciting day. I, I know they probably can't do it on TV because, you know, it's not going to be many picks, but I, I'm just so excited to see it come out. Just really genuinely excited. Honestly, this will be the highlight of the first half of my year, as sad as that sounds. <laughs> it sounds really, really sad. And I'm regretting saying it already. I don't think it is as true. I know, I, I'm going to rescind it slightly. I don't think that's true. But it will be one of the highlights because I think I think it was Freddie Wilde who once said that T20 competition are one in the draft room. They're one in the auction room. And I think it's true. You look at last season's men's competition. The teams that got to the final were the teams that recruited the best, the Southern yeah. Brave and Birmingham Phoenix. I don't think there's much more to it than that. They were the best recruiting sides and they went the furthest because of that. They had the best team, they won the competition. It's a really obvious point to make, but it's so often overlooked. If you have the best recruitment strategy, you will get the best players and the best team and you will go far and you will have far more chance to win. T20 is naturally a high variance game, but in order to stand more chance of coming out the right side of that variance, it helps if you have the best team at your disposal. And the two teams that went the furthest happened to have the best team at their disposal, and that was no accident. So uh, the, the results of the draft would be really interesting to see because they will dictate a hell of a lot of what happens in August and September when the 100 competition happens. And I'm really excited to see what happens, mainly because I think there's so many unanswered questions I just don't know which way teams are going to go. And that's exciting for me. It's it's a complete, it's, it's a big chance for these teams to have a little bit of a refresh and really lock in some really exciting talents that will shape their season for either the better or the worse. Whatever happens, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, and we absolutely can't wait. And we'll be all over it at Podcast 100 on Twitter. Send us email by questions. Got loads of interesting stuff on our feed as well. So go listen back to our retentions podcast and Max Backhouse. And we can't wait to get stuck into draft season. Let's do it. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.